That is the fork in the road. <laughs> and that is what we're going to talk about today. That was Dr. Shin's idea. He yeah. says, we're the fork in the road ahead of us. And we have to think seriously about some of the decisions we're making when we give cognitive assessments. So, um, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us, Dr. Shen. We really appreciate it. Can anybody hear me? Oh, yeah. We can hear you loud and clear. Great. What do you know? I was also going to say maybe the put a fork in the me. I'm done. So, <laughs> <laughs> if no, anybody has no. a sense of humor out there. No. You, you have a long history, but we are not done listening to you yet. <laughs> yeah, well, if anybody was on the NASP listserv this morning, uh, before I had my cup of coffee, I, I think I'm done. Oh, no. oh boy, it's uh, <laughs> it's been a long road, and uh, you know sometimes you think we're getting somewhere, and and sometimes it's like, uh, boy, change is slow. Right. And, and it's. Uh, it's the same in any other kind of change process. You know, right. the Thomas Kuhn did this book about paradigm shift and paradigm shift happens basically when, when people pass away and, uh, oh. and, and new people are born. Mm -hmm. And I, I keep waiting for people to start carrying torch of those who have come before us, you know, who right. are the. Who are the people that will be replacing the voices that uh, came before me? Mm -hmm. uh, the the great names that I don't hear anymore, which is really too bad. Mm -hmm. So well, let me do a quick introduction of every of you for everybody, because wow, there's a lot to to tell everybody about. In case you don't know, who Dr. Shin is he's one of the I say founding fathers, especially. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Dr. Shin is retired from serving as a professor and coordinator of the School of Psychology at the National Lois University in Chicago. Prior to joining the National Lois University in 2003, he was a professor of school psychology and special education at the University of Oregon. That was from 1998, uh, 1984, sorry, to 2003. Yeah. yeah. And he has was awarded the 2003 APA School Psychology Division Jack Barden Award for Career Service Achievements and remains an APA follow, fellow awarded in 1994. Dr. Shin received his PhD from the University of Minnesota, where he studied with Dr. James Eiseldyke and Dr. Stan Dino at the University of Minnesota Institute for Research on Learning Disabilities. Dr. Shin has been nationally recognized, a nationally recognized consultant to schools and state departments of education across the country on the implementation of MTSS and RTI. He began working in the first urban school district sites, St. Paul and Minneapolis Public Schools. That evolved into an RTI model in the early 1980s, and he has worked with schools and the State Departments of Education for more than 40 years. Among these consultation activities, he served five years as the project director of the Northern Region of I Aspire 
and the U.S. Department of Education Office of Special Education and the Illinois State Board of Education Personnel Preparation Grant for supporting implementation of RTI and a multi-tier intervention model in Illinois. He has supported other State Department efforts in Virginia, Tennessee, North Dakota, and his areas of specific expertise are scientifically based skill, scientifically based basic skill progress monitoring and screening, particularly when applied in a multi-tier system of support or response to intervention RTI. Dr. Shin has edited two books on curriculum-based measurement and has published almost 100 journal articles and book chapters on basic skills, progress monitoring, and screening. In addition, he has contributed to the software development of a program called AIMSWeb, which some of you may use or have heard of, and the progress monitoring components of the Jamestown Reading Navigator and VMAP, VMath, sorry. As part of his contributions to the knowledge base of evidence-based interventions, he co-edited three editions of Interventions for Achievement and Behavior Problems in a three-tier model, including RTI published by NASP. For four years, he was one of six members of the U.S. Department of Education Office of Special Education uh, National Center for P Student Progress Monitoring Technical Review Panel for judging whether or not progress monitoring tests met professional standards. In his career, he has been the principal or co-principal investigator on more than $4 million worth of federal uh, personnel preparation and research grants. So if you want to know somebody who could help make RTI happen, this is, this is the, the pioneer in all of that. <laughs> yeah. So really, we are really lucky to hear from you. So a couple of questions we're going to start off with. I really want everyone just to understand how you started uh, maybe working with, with Dr. Dino and what that vision was of um, social justice when you were doing that. And, and then how did that evolve into into CBMs and how what role did you see the purpose of CBMs in achieving that social justice? Yeah, well, you got to go back. I mean, way you go back in the time machine if anybody uh, ever uh, understands that sort of concept. So I entered uh, graduate school right around the time of passage of the first civil rights law that uh, guaranteed kids with disabilities access to school, right? We're talking 19, I started in 76, and the passage of the Education for All Handicapped Children Act was 1975. But people need to re re realize that this was, a dis this was a civil rights act, okay? Uh, so we're talking about uh, the time when we were the uh, voting rights were being uh, finally granted to large parts of America that had never had it before. And this was also part of the court cases that had been happening around the country, enabling, if you can imagine, uh, kids to be able to come into school. That's civil rights. That's social justice. And the, the tenor at the times was, okay, so how do we protect these kids? 
I entered graduate school and federal funding was uh, directed in, in, to five universities to study um, what do kids with disabilities uh, need to be able to have their rights protected? And uh, one of the centers was at the University of Minnesota where I was going to graduate school. It was the grant with uh, Jim Eiseldyke and Stan Dino and a number of other researchers uh, were funded at the University of Minnesota Institute for Research on Learning Disabilities, the IRLD. Okay, they had uh, two primary uh, missions, okay, and Jim Eiseldyke, my advisor, was charged with studying how do schools identify kids with learning disabilities. This was the mystery class, okay, how do schools do it? And this one, we talk about the fork in the road, this is going to be one of the forks that we're still studying today, okay? And still remains the big source of controversy. The other fork in the road was the work, the commission to Stan Dino, okay? And that is, uh, we have this new thing called the IEP. How do we write goals? And importantly, how do we monitor progress toward those goals? There was no viable technology, no measurement, no test system other than this. Uh, we want kids to do better. And the, the only sort of technology was this thing called, uh, let's see, how about if kids do 80% uh, by the end of the year, <laughs> you know, which was, of course, terrible. Uh, you know, a, a book called Magger and Pipe uh, writing behavioral objectives. And Stan Dino got charged with developing a data system. He already had some ideas based on a book he wrote for the Council for Exceptional Children. And so uh, I put both feet, one foot in the Eiseldyke study and one foot in the Dino study. Okay, since I knew Stan from previous work and Jim Eiseldyke was my advisor. And Stan and his research team were working on trying to find something, a data system that would be simple, cheap, easy to do, uh, and uh, scientifically sound. And, uh, it, and so he sent a bunch of graduate students into the library to find different ways that people could uh, assess basic skills in the language arts. And that became we had, it was called a bunch of racehorses. We tested a variety of different ways of assessing reading, spelling, and, and uh, writing, uh, having kids read aloud, having kids uh, read every fifth word, having kids uh, fill in uh, a closed procedure. So uh, every fifth word was left blank, uh, having kids do multiple choice, having kids a whole bunch of different ways. And the best way that worked was having kids read aloud. We had kids read aloud for 10 minutes, seven minutes, five minutes, three minutes, one minute, 30 seconds. We had, oh my goodness, a bunch of different ways, okay? And, and so this was a process where we had real kids do real things and we had criterion 
measures, Woodcock Johnson's, and oh my goodness, Woodcock reading mastery tests, and all kinds of criteria measures. And we we looked at which ones worked best in terms of uh, uh, concurrent and predictive validity. And the one that worked best was uh, an oral reading test. And it didn't really matter if you did 10, 7, 5, 3, 1, or 30 seconds. Uh, they all worked equally well. And that was the development of curriculum-based measurement. Now, it wasn't called that at the time. That came later. But um, I had my foot in both uh, both uh, research parts. I had two prongs of a fork. And uh, that's how I got my interest. And I was really lucky in terms of being a school psychology person. And I ended up doing an internship in urban schools where I had a chance to apply both interests. So uh, my internship was in St. Paul schools. And if you can imagine this, um, my internship, I was assigned to work with uh, about 3,000 kids who uh, recently arrived from Southeast Asia. And the district was concerned about how to identify those kids who had uh, learning difficulties, uh, separating those kids with learning difficulties from those kids who had uh, difficulties just plain uh, because of their language, dif language differences. And then there were another 4,000 kids who, whose primary language was Spanish. And so um, we had about 7,000 kids. And my, my job as an intern was to work with a team to develop a system to differentiate kids with learning disabilities from kids who were having difficulty uh, just because of their language differences. And the tools we used were curriculum-based measures. So that's how I talk about you want a challenge when you're uh, an, an intern. Uh, and, and guess what? That was how many years ago? And uh, after the first year, we were given exemplary program status by the Council for Exceptional Children for the quality of our work. So yeah, guess what? We could in those days differentiate kids with from with learning problems uh real learning problems from kids who had difficulty learning just because they were learning english how many years ago was that right. well like i thought my caseload was large <laughs> yeah you know at three thousand and four thousand kids that you're charged with making sure that they make progress that's yeah. wow yeah, two years, two years later, uh, and oh, by the way, we did that without uh, cognitive tests because it seems sort of silly to ask uh, kids from uh, either white Hmong or blue Hmong tribes to ask how far is it from Chicago to New York or uh, what do you call a baby cow? Uh, that seems sort of silly to do and or repeat digits backwards or things like that. And when I moved to Minneapolis schools two years later, and we had a district of uh, 40,000 kids, uh, K, uh, that was K-6, I believe, 40,000 kids, 
about 80% of those kids were qualified for free and reduced lunch. Uh, within one year, we no longer routinely administered cognitive tests as part of our eligibility determination. This was 1983. We no longer gave cognitive tests as a routine part of our assessment, in large part because we hardly ever had kids who obtained full-scale scores higher than 85 or 90. We were testing poor kids, and they don't do very well on those kinds of tests. That was a billion years ago. So tell us a little bit about, you know, things have evolved so much you know, now. Um, but you know, now, you know, when you were working, there wasn't such thing as an MTSS in the beginning. Yeah. CB CBMs didn't even have norms then. They were, they were just sort of things teachers created and kept, they created their own norms and they based it on their own curriculum. And I, you know, I, I've learned now that curriculum based measures kind of a misnomer now because we've it's it's not assessing a certain curriculum it's really assessing basic right. skills now so that's yeah. another way it's changed and and then this whole connection between mtss and rti and i think look, a lot of people are confused that a lot of that these things are really all connected you can't talk about one without talking about the other you can't oh yeah about, we can't talk about rti without talking about cbms and i think yeah. that's what a lot of people don't get and then we you know do we call it mts do we call it rti so what is Give us like what the whole picture looks like, how these things fit together. Yeah, how, how everything evolved. Okay, so in those days, the, the, the things, the uh, the measures evolved from the students' curriculum. The emphasis was on content validity. Okay, content validity was the driving force, and so. I can tell you in the in Minneapolis schools, the curriculum was GIN, you know, GIN 720. So at the district level, we we made the assessment materials for teachers and we developed the norms for the district. And in fact, we had two sets of norms because of the 40 some schools. Uh, there were differences between the high-performing schools and the low-performing schools. The differences were only between the high and low-performing schools, but we had school and district norms. We prepared them for the schools. The schools didn't have to do anything. But uh, as it turns out, within eight years, the research demonstrated that the the content validity was less important than having standard passages, okay? Standard passages that were more controlled in terms of difficulty. Now, technically then, the emphasis was on construct validity, less on content validity. The standardization of the passages was more important. So now you started to see you know, the commercialization. So you started to see publishers getting involved, and that was a genesis of places like the early Dibbles and the early Ames Web and the early uh, Easy CBM, etc. Okay? That's where those things came into play in the development of national norms by the publishers. Okay, 
Now the law comes into play and the law enables a process called RTI. And notice I use the word process, okay? Now simultaneously, simultaneously now, there's this growth that's been happening since the early 80s. The growth in this alternative system of serving kids because the federal government is concerned that learning disabilities is growing out of control. And it did. From the very early days, learning disabilities exploded. It grew and grew and grew. And the federal government got incredibly concerned. NASP got incredibly concerned. And so there was a continuous effort, whether it was called pre-referral intervention, problem solving, instructional support teams, all around the country, people were trying to make sure that many kids who were not kids with disabilities, who were instructional casualties, had some services, okay, to enable them to succeed. Now, ultimately, this process, and that's why you started to see the law change, okay? Things like the kids had to have appropriate instruction, okay, as a mechanism, okay? So these services got so confusing, they were starting to get a bunch of different names. In 2000, of course, in 2004, the law changes. The federal government expresses a preference for states to have a process called RTI. A preference, a clear and explicit preference. The federal law says the state must permit a process of RTI and the state must not make uh, local education agencies do ability achievement discrepancies. That's a clear preference in federal regulations, okay, to get schools to try to do something else, okay? Now, to clarify all these other things that are going on, people make an effort to differentiate the process of RTI from a service delivery system. So behavior support is part of MTSS. Tiered services are part of MTSS. Eligibility determination is RTI. So RTI is a process for eligibility. MTSS is a service delivery system. So if I were in front of you, I would be having my arms in a really big circle above my head. I'm doing it right now. You can't see me. It's everything we do to provide kids opportunities for growth and development. And I'm, now I would be making a very small circle with my hands, and that's RTI. It's a process. And if Nazi uh, will remind me, I'll send you the slide that graphically shows this, okay? So think system, 
MTSS is a system, a really big bunch of stuff. RTI is a process. What we do to get kids uh, eligible, okay? And there's a bunch of things that go into that, okay? And, and, and it, it can be very clearly delineated what we go into that. Some of it is very messy because schools aren't very good at a lot of it, which I find kind of disheartening. And I know that you folks do too. Isn't it amazing how sloppy schools are at some stuff? So I see, I've, I Googled MTSS umbrella and it does, it have a, has a little triangle underneath of it for the RTI and it's just like a little triangle. And underneath of it also is the PBIS. Yep. Parental action, the school yep. and community collaboration, teamwork, yep. professional development, curriculum design, yep. all of things under this MTSS umbrella. So social emotional learning. Yeah. Yep. RPI is just one little little tiny triangle underneath all of that. Yep. Well, I hate to have it a triangle because that really confuses things, but to me it's a little circle. You know, it's a process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. um that's, I think that was one thing we really needed to have cleared up. And can you tell us when you actually start designing a set of CBMs, what was, what was going into it? What makes some CBMs better than others? What are the benefits of CBMs over other measures? And um, what are, I mean, I just keep going back to local norms. We don't, the only source I have seen of local norms in Texas is the TEMI, which we are very appreciative of the TEA to work with the Meadow Center to create that because Texas math is different than a lot of math with our different TEKS. So um, that really helps. But just how have the quality of CBMs, what are we looking for in a CBM? How's that evolved over the last 25 years? Well, we have to, we have to start talking about tools in the toolbox, okay? And if I had one tool in the toolbox, I would give any educator is if we're not really good at what I call the big gorilla, the big gorilla is being able to assess a kid's reading. Okay. Because guess what? 90% of the kids we work with, whether a kid is doing poorly in school because of academics or doing poorly in school because of behavior, is they can't read very well. And if you can't assess a kid's reading very well, we're not doing very well. And so I was working with uh, uh, some folks uh, at the University of Missouri. I was doing a kind of a pro bono guest lecture on Monday with some future school psychologists there. And I was teaching them how to assess the big gorilla. And the big gorilla is having a measure of oral reading in your toolbox, okay? And, and I, I really think we should stop calling it oral reading fluency because it's an oral reading test. It's a short oral reading test. And it goes something like this. When I say begin, start reading a lot at the top of the page. Read across the page. If you come to a word you don't know, I'll tell it to you. Be sure to do your best reading. Are you ready? Begin. And if we all know how to do that, okay, and we've got 
some standard reading passages in front of us and know how to score it and know how to listen to it and know how to interpret it and know how to record it. Because guess what? If we can record it, we can use it to play it back. Now, if we can record it with video, everybody else can see it, which is really cool. Because you know how often a kid has ever seen themselves read? I'll bet most of the kids that we work with have never once seen themselves read. And I'll bet, quite often, teachers have never seen their kids they work with read in a standard situation the same way we would see them read. And I can pretty much assure you that many parents have never seen their kids read under standard conditions, especially when we can interpret it for them. Because you see, there are seven qualitative features. In addition to a quantitative score and a graph, we could show them about their kids reading. For example, does this kid read accurately? Does this kid have a successful strategy for words they don't know? Does this kid read with expression or fancy term attention to prosodic features? Does this kid show evidence of comprehension self-monitoring? Fancy word for uh, read with uh, self-correcting. Okay, there's a bunch of things uh, we can uh, learn by having this kid read aloud. And even better, we can take this big gorilla and we can have this kid read and do something that nobody's ever done. We can test for success. We can test for success, not just by testing where this kid has difficulty, because I would predict this kid would do very poorly in the material that would be expected after a grade. Like you've got a fifth grade kid and this kid's probably not gonna read grade five material very well. But how would this kid read in grade four? How would this kid read in grade three? How low do you have to have this kid read before they start reading well, okay? And this would be what we call in the federal law, present level of academic and functional performance, which is required in the IEP. What material do you use to determine the present level of functional and academic performance? Because if you're reporting a grade level score from a Woodcock Johnson or a Wyatt, I'm telling you, you're probably not doing enough. See, a simple little measure of an authentic assessment. Did you hear that word, authentic assessment? Where you can actually show somebody what you've done and you can actually describe what you've done. It's simple. It's cheap. You'll probably, you know, you sample some things. You'd have that thing wrapped up with most kids probably in 15 to 20 minutes. Doesn't cost you much. You carry it around on an iPad. It's really, really, really simple. You've got a phone to be able to collect video if you wanted. You've got an iPad to collect video if you wanted. You can keep a little uh, video record if you want to see that kid in a couple months to be able to show growth. Think about this, you could show growth if that 
teacher collected a video sample every couple of months and, and, and put that data on a graph? You want to be able to show something really cool at an annual review or a three-year review? Start doing a video portfolio. There's a bunch of really cool things you can do just in reading alone. Now, if you really want to get fancy, we start doing spelling. Because guess where you're going to start to see, excuse the term, dyslexia. You want to start seeing dyslexia? You add reading and spelling, an authentic measure of curriculum-based measurement in spelling, where kids actually write the words. Now, Louisa Motes, who I've had the pleasure to work with in a couple different things, including a class action suit in California, Louisa Motes, whenever she talks about uh, uh, dyslexia, always uses spelling examples. Not spelling examples where kids point to or fill in bubbles, but where kids are actually asked to spell words. And CBM spelling is such a simple way to assess kids' spelling. It is, well, man, it is, it is like between oral reading and spelling, it is such a wonderful and cheap tool to put into your toolbox. You will learn so much. And nobody else can do this stuff. Nobody does it. And if you want to make yourself special, and if you want to make yourself valuable, do stuff that nobody else can do. Uh, the spelling, you bring up the spelling, because I've been on, on a hunt for free spelling norms. And because I've made this tool where, where the diagnosticians can use uh, to get a sample of how somebody might perform on a CBM in certain areas, maybe to make a baseline for a goal or include in the report as one more measure or what have you. And the spelling, I, I know Ames Webs has a nice chart of spelling norms. And I, I've referred to that. I only have the chart because I have the ABCs of CBMs book mm -hmm. and it's in there, but, um, I don't feel like there's a free spelling norms available outside of Ames Web. So is that true or? Yeah, but you know, some of these things and, and here's, here's people can get hung up on, on, you know, how, how certain do you want to be? Okay. About a problem. And so I'll go back to the old, old, old days when we didn't have norms. Okay. We didn't have these national norms, but it's how confident do we want to be? And for some things, we don't need a high degree of confidence. So we can, so let's go back to the idea of problem solving. Okay, so let's talk about the decision called problem identification. And that is, is this student sufficiently different Okay, sufficiently different. Now we can we can rule out a problem. Okay, by by this kid is not sufficiently different. Okay, and 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 we don't need large numbers of kids at the early stages to say that. Okay, 
And so I spelling, that's so easy to rule that out because I can go into a classroom and I can ask a teacher, would you mind if I uh, have a group of kids uh, take a spelling test? I'll be done in five minutes. Here's the words. I'm going to ask the kids. No names will be uh it will be on the thing and I'll give you, you know, some data on, on your class average. It's a really simple thing to do. And I'll, I'll score the whole class. I'll be done in five minutes and I'll have a, a basis to compare this kid to the class average. It's really simple. Now, I can show that this kid is significantly different from the typical kid in the class. I can this kid is by far the lowest kid in the class? Maybe not. Wouldn't that be interesting if three other kids is, are even lower than this kid? Now, those other kids are not identified, of course. But this gives me a context for interpreting this kid's performance in the context for other kids. I don't know what I'm going to find. Okay? It helps me understand the kid. Now, of course, I would do this in the full, you know, consent of a school principal or something like this, but it's not a really big deal, okay? So, and I know that, oh, what'll happen and blah, blah, blah. You know, you can't rule out being able to collect some very simple information like that to help you in the context of decision-making. Now, everybody gets all freaked out, and, oh, we can't do that. And here's the deal, you don't know until you try. You know, again, anonymous information, it's regular educational practice, it's not research, no names are used. The teacher could do it themselves if you taught them how to, you know, have kids spell a word every 10 seconds for two minutes, it's not a big deal. The words can, you know, here's the list, it's so simple, so. And it's the same thing with writing. Writing is fun. And and for, you know, if you want to do the same thing for reading, oh my goodness, the kids love to read to you. You know, it's special. You know, you, you, oh yes, you're having kids read to you one by, you know, one to one. Oh my goodness, isn't that stigmatizing? No. Kids read to other people all the time. Yeah, I think, um... I mean, you really hit something home for me when you said, can you catch a learning disability? And I, I, right after you said that, you told me you could catch a learning disability. I saw a post, what I posted on here isn't um, on this pen. It's just a pen I could grab real quick. But it wasn't the actual map that I saw on Twitter or somebody had posted. It, the one I saw on Twitter was fourth and eighth graders on the NAEP from 2019. They hadn't made a map for 2000 uh, post-COVID yet. But disparity across the country, I mean, we haven't closed those gaps, right? I mean, right. We, we're still, there's still a lot of work to do in closing those gaps. But, and it's not just the, it's not just the low socioeconomic kids, although- Oh, no. It's not just the kids with second language learners. I mean, oh no! It's some of these just plain suburban kids, you know. <laughs> well, and, and in fact, it's one of my. Uh, I was just in this discussion on a 
a, a group of people with twice exceptional, you know, the kids that are yeah. high cognitive ability scores, but and are average readers, uh, they're, they're seen as uh, a, 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 a talented and gifted and uh, learning disabled. And, and those are kids that are, are uh, they're not they're not learning disabled they're average readers they're an anomaly because it's regression towards the mean and and those kids are 20 times more likely to be determined eligible as uh, learning disabled than a than a kid with a lower cognitive ability score who can't read at all and and that's a suburban phenomenon you know you've got kids in the suburbs who are average readers who are labeled as learning disabled, okay? And and I can tell you, uh, in the districts around where I live, uh, kids that <laughs> kids that are in special ed around here, uh, they're average readers, okay? They they score in the average range on uh, achievement tests, uh, and if they would. They would move to Chicago. They would be in the they would be uh, in the top readers. So, and kids in Chicago public school, uh, many of those kids they move out to the burbs, and uh, they are uh, they're they're in special ed in a matter of weeks. So it really is just learning disability. Early is just a it can just be a construct in the context that you are assessing in and. So if we don't know the context, then how are we really assessing, right? Is that what you're basically saying? Well, it's, it, and it's not, you know, this is, and, and I would expect that diagnosticians would know this better than anybody. Because if you've got a, if you've got a, 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 a community that, if you're serving different socioeconomic communities, you, you have to know, that, that kids in special ed are not the same wh wherever you go. They're not. A, a kid in the in the suburbs in special ed is not the same as a kid the suburb a kid in in the city. It's just not. You know, mm -hmm. I've worked in uh, e even in you know even in the the you know the cities the the two big cities that I worked with the you would go I worked in the uh, uh, one of the districts I worked with, uh, one of the schools I worked with was the typical kid was at the 80th percentile, okay? Five miles down the road was one of my other schools, and the typical kid there was about the 20th percentile, okay? The only difference was five miles down the same road. <laughs> five, five miles, and it's like, the 80th percentile to the 20th percentile, five miles? Jeez, that, okay. That's really concerning when you talk about discrimination, you know, or, or what are we using to say, okay, all these people have disabilities and all these people don't if they live here, but not if they live somewhere else. That, that we, that's, um, that's why I keep going back to CBMs. We need them to create local norms. We need to be able to have the context in which we are assessing, we need to know, otherwise we are going to be repeating history and right. going back over to this 300% referral rate, you know, 
learning right. disabilities being, we are, I mean, you go to district after district, we're having a hard time keeping diagnosticians. We're having a hard time keeping them healthy. We are working day and night. We want to fulfill this vision of child find. We want to identify the children. We want to get them help. But it's really hard to do it when we don't have context and we don't have, we don't know what, uh, what, what the curriculum, what the MTSS plans are. I mean, I pulled right. up an MTSS plan and it's very elaborate, full of CBMs, what you give in the winter, spring, summer, a first grade, middle, uh, and, and kindergarten and, you know, fourth, third grade. It, and then what an intervention should be, what, uh, what, what it should look like if the intervention's working, how many points they should gain, what's oh not my working. God. I mean, I, I see these, these, these plans, these MTSS plans, these RTI plans in other districts that are posted in the internet. And we don't, we're calling tutoring R RTI. That's not RTI. Right. Yeah. So that, you know, the sort of this bottom line on this stuff, when I say there's this fork in the road, and the fork in the road is whenever, you know, as we get to this point, you know, we 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 can debate all we want, okay, about who is and who is not, and and I just wish we would come to consensus that this is a so sociological issue, okay? It's a sociological issue. It's not a psychological issue. It's not a scientific issue, okay? When who is the, I love this, who's the truly SLD kid? And, and, and I don't know that we will ever know that, okay? It's defined in the law. The, the definition has not changed since it was written in what, 1975, codified in 77. And, and I know, the the people and i i know and i mean i know the people who were responsible for the idea of 2004 and they they debated whether to change the definition and the discussion was let's not bother with the definition because that'll just open up a can of worms let's focus on the parts that matter which is what people will actually do, okay? And so that was in the SLD part, and that was around, they, okay, we're, never, we're not gonna get rid of the ability achievement discrepancy part. So let's, let's take this step and not require it, okay? That's a big deal, to open the door and say you don't have to. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're not going to get rid of it, but we're going to say you don't have to. Okay, mm -hmm. and we're going to open up the door to say you can do something else. And we're not going to close the door to this whatever. Okay, and that third method, sadly, opened up the door to Pandora's box, which is PSW. They didn't intend to open up the door to PSW, but they didn't want to close the door to the future. Okay, that made sense. Don't close the door because who knows? So, but that that was the big deal was to after 30, what, 20, 24 years to, to sit down and say, look, we've learned that ability to achieve discrepancy didn't work. Okay, right. 
we learned that. And we know that we have to do something else. And they put in the determinant factors. That was a huge thing, which, of course, was immediately glossed over because it's really difficult. Appropriate instruction in reading and math. That was supposed to be a really big deal. That was supposed to be the stopgap. Okay, so remember after 2004, this is right during No Child Left Behind. Okay, so now we're in this process where everybody is supposed to be focusing on core instruction. People don't remember this era. Everybody's supposed to be improving their reading programs. The nation is focused on all this stuff. People are supposed to be focused on appropriate instruction. And now, of course, it's just gotten glossed over with a checkbox. Right. Who, 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 who's going to, in their right mind, say the kid hasn't gotten appropriate instruction? Right. At a, at a team a, meeting? I can't say that. I can't say that in my report. <laughs> I'll be shot. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to take you out and they'll never talk to you again. Right. You know, that would be so brave. You know, although I can tell you there have been in, in before there were those things, I, I would be a person that would in my schools before the meeting, I probably would say we can't we can't really do that stuff because this kid's had lousy instruction. But those were in the old days where we would never have gotten to the team without those discussions happening beforehand. But, you know, yeah. We have one of the authors of one of the, I guess, most forefront PSW methods that we've we've dropped a PSW method that used a lot of discrepancies. And um, we've now taken, you know, starting to follow uh, one called CSEP, which is... Core select and uh, Dr. Schultz is here. He also yeah. has um, uh, give me some questions to ask you, and he's just saying that. And you going back to the law and what's important in the law. I think the fact that a lot of the law wasn't rewritten is it has become a problem because we do focus on what it says, and it's. I mean, but we also I think cues pick and choose what it says because it also talks about minimal brain dysfunction still I don't know yeah, but that's that not <laughs> but but we see but that's not that's not the, that's not in the regulations mm-hmm. it's it's the regulations that matter okay right. and so you, you can do whatever you want about the law but it's it's the regulations that matter okay right and we have our state regulations and they did just recently change and that's kind of why I started all this I'm like okay well this is the opportunity to beat that RTI drum because the regulations changed and it leaves a lot more open to um to to having an RTI approach but you know he some of the questions that Dr. Schultz had were regarding the interpretation of the law like assessing for things like listening comprehension and oral expression (laughs) and how that's like really difficult to assess (laughs) in an rti model or that (laughs) how do you assess that in the absence of an rti you know research um sure how many kids do you get referred for listening comprehension I, i would say 
none, but then none. we feel like we have to do a comprehensive evaluation. No, you don't. No, no. Find the kid because you know they have nope. a learning disability. So you, I mean, this is where I feel like we talk, we say, we think we are saying two different things, but a lot of times we're saying is that we, I mean, CSEP says, start with your hypothesis. Why test everything? Test what's in your hypothesis. But at the same time, we don't get a referral packet that is give, helping us form a hypothesis that we don't know what to do. So you got a problem in, in, uh, there's always this adverb in front of the word comprehensive okay and it's really important to remember what that adverb is the adverb is sufficiently comprehensive okay sufficiently comprehensive and it's almost always followed by in the area of disability because the law is not intended to say you gotta do everything all the time. It's really important. The law is a really good law and it's intended to place uh, judgments in the hands of professionals. So what's really cool, and I've learned a lot about this from uh, Dr. Perry Zarkel, who's one of the leading authorities on special education law. I've, I've had the opportunity to listen to Perry for about oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 hours. And I've had the privilege of um, being asked to edit some of his uh, journal articles where I've really had to read carefully some of the things that he's written. And these little words uh, that we skip over or don't pay attention to uh, really matter, like adverbs, you know, like sufficiently. Oh, that makes us think. Or words like may. May is a judgment word. It's a little word, but it means that may, which means, oh, we may not. Or shall, or shall not. Must is a prohibitive word. Must means we don't have discretion. And so we need to look at those words really, really carefully because the law is intended to give us a lot of room for judgment. It's really cool and sufficiently comprehensive in the area of disability. So teams get to decide and it's teams, not people, it's not policy. And so we need to get comfortable with some of these discussions. And so, you know, when, you know, I, 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 it's, it's really been enlightening for us to sit down and say, you know, and as a team, what, what do we really need to know about this kid? Like listening comprehension is hilarious. Like you don't get kids referred for listening comprehension, nor do we test for listening comprehension unless somebody really wants the kid eligible and we haven't found anything else. I find that absolutely fascinating. It's like, okay, uh, he's not eligible here. How about this one? And it's almost always when kids aren't eligible. And and it, and reading comprehension is another one. Reading comp if kids get in for reading comprehension, they'll never get out of special ed. 
because whatever the it depends on what they're reading <laughs> from dr burns oh for course you, know, you comprehend of course. things better when you you could comprehend one one passage really well based on the content yeah and not co co not comprehend another one because you don't have the background information on that particular topic have you ever tried to fill out your taxes <laughs> I always say, if you put me at the G8 summit, I'd be a learning disabled. <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's based on prior knowledge and motivation and vocabulary that it's, it's fascinating. It's, it's, yeah, it, there's a lot of things that go into comprehension. It's, it's, yeah. You, yeah. Have you ever, I've, I've kids in school? I've heard a few rumblings of changing, you know, the five different or the eight different areas just to dyslexia, dysgraphia, and dys um, dyscalculia because those are the more basic skills. Oh yeah. Well, how about math problem solving? How about that one? Did have you ever seen the kinds of things that kids I are asked yet, to do in problem solving? You know, oh. and I'm, I'm so oh. with, with all the CBMs are focused on numeration and i'm like okay is numeration math calculation or is it not math problem solving i don't where, where does numeration fit like yeah I say he has a disability in numeration <laughs> yeah it, it, when you get into math problem solving and i don't know of any good measures of math problem solving by the way i don't i don't know how to measure it i don't know how to measure progress in it i don't know how to do that and and so it's it's just it's like comprehension. I don't know how to assess comprehension. I don't know how to assess it as a problem. I don't know how to assess it as progress because it depends on what you're being asked to to, assess, to understand. And it's, the, way, the way it's, it's taught a lot of times. Oh, yeah. well, it, it, it isn't taught. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's read Romeo and Juliet. What it, okay. Are, do you understand it? Well, what do you mean understand it? Do you want me to tell you what's going on? Okay, or do you want me to make predictions about, okay, there's so many things when you say understand uh, Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, um, do you want me to tell you what's gonna happen next? Do you want me to tell you how Romeo is feeling? Do you want me to use Romeo as a uh, example of uh, modern teenagers' thoughts about something? Uh, right. I give up. Well, we're getting towards the end here. Let me get some uh, audience participation here. We've sure. A lot of it chats, and I'm going to scroll through some of them. Um, <laughs> It's just, uh -oh. I, went, I went gangster with the song. You, I, you haven't heard all my songs. I like the gangster stuff. Yeah. Um, and let's see. Uh, Candace, she says, would love to get insight on the discrepancy between the GORT and just doing a CBM and oral reading fluency. And I would say, Candace, just remember that the GORT is age-based and CBMs are always grade. They're based on grades. Um, accuracy seems to be over overflated with the GORT with oh, yeah. coming out poor and marking the self-corrections and repeating phrases is. Yeah, so accuracy is, remember, accuracy is a 
qualitative score, okay? It's a number, but it's a qualitative score, okay? So is 80% good? It's a high number, but 80% is kind of bad. And here's the deal about 80%. Eight out of 10 is the same as 80 out of 100, okay? So the, 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 the GORT, okay, has, has the advantage of its, okay, it's standard passages and junk like that. But it, it's, uh, you know, and it, all of these things all evolved out of the same history, okay? The, the GORT was around uh, when Crickland-based measurement was developed, okay? They all come out of the same history. Oral reading is a good Great. That's why it's called. That's why I call it the gorilla. Grandmas know how important oral reading is. At, at Thanksgiving, they have their grandkids sit on their knee and 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 they listen to their grandkids read. Grandpas listen to their grandkids read because they want to know if their grandkids can read. You know, it's it's just so wonderful to it's be able to hear. Yeah. It is. Right, you know, part of culture. Yeah. It is. And yeah, so and I think like too the technology is also like a, a issue because people want to be fast and efficient, so they just have kids click on things in a computer and don't have them read to them and they say yeah, well, which know, I... have them read one by one to you, it takes too long. And yeah. then how are you really assessing them? No, I don't like you know I don't I, I think losing that human capacity that if, if you know i don't i i like the and i'm a computer guy right but I, if we can't devote time to i and I, I i've been on this kick for about 10 years that if we can't see our kids perform that if we can't hear our kids perform if we can't see and hear what our kids do if we don't have time to do that, if we can't devote time to see and hear our kids, what's wrong with us, okay? Especially where we're talking a few minutes. I mean, that, that, that warmth, that humanity, and especially when we talk about assessing kids, that I, I, I mean, I think that this is a human moment. Right. It's, it's weird, but in our assessment process, that we can't be human about this? I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, and, 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 and I just love, you know, being able to share in, in, in our technological world, to be able to sit down and, and share, you know, with parents, have you, have you seen your kid? Look at, look at them, look at them read, mm -hmm. especially when you can pair that with a graph and show growth. See, one That's of these why things. I feel we're... like we don't have, we don't build confidence without CBMs. We can't build confidence in our parent with our parents. Like we can't right. tell them, look, you don't need to refer your kid because they're growing. Why would you want to do that? They're they're making good progress with what they have, but we don't have. We're basically telling them that your kid's struggling, and if, and we might we're going to put them on a five hundred four or put them in RTI. And by the yeah. way, you have the right to a special education evaluation, so you really have no reason to have any confidence in us. As yep as a school system. Is that, well, is this like a wrong message to send to parents? Well, if, if we can just go back to sort of, 
you know, we think about, um, you know, like positive psychology stuff, you know, like if we can be communicating growth and development, growth and development, growth and development, like curriculum-based measurement was designed to show growth, okay? And the fork in the road to me is no matter what we do, we can argue about who is and who is not a kid with a disability forever. But if, if we can get into the business of showing growth, put tools in our toolbox that allow us to see and hear growth, you know, monitor progress, it show growth and development, okay? You, we can argue forever who is. Is this a kid with or without a disability? Like I said, to me, this is a sociological issue, okay? Right. It's a societal issue. Who is, who's poor? Who's not poor? Who's Title I? Who's not Title I? You know, Texas has identified too few or too many. They'll argue about that forever, okay? And, and now we got to get the numbers up. Now we got to get the numbers down. Oh, my goodness. But, but let's get kid services and let's show growth. Right. A couple more things in the chat. So Amy uh, Seasbury, I, uh, she says, TEA says sufficiently comprehensive is the word they use. Mm -hmm. um, and then Dr. Schultz is, wants to talk about also the... Um, Oral comprehension, not necessarily as a learning disability, but uh, re as related to to reading comprehension. So, in other words, if you can't understand it orally, he talks a lot about bringing kids into your sort of your office as your laboratory, where you can kind of control for things and list, you know to assess them and get down to the bottom of what where is the 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 struggle coming from. If I pull them and I can we they can listen to a story me reading a story and they understand it but then when they read it they can't understand it so then is that a listening comprehension but if they can't understand it when they listen to it and they also can't understand it when they read it then we're you know maybe that's more of a listening issue so I, he does a lot of uh explaining that you know sort of boiling it down to where is this coming from is i don't know your commentary on that <laughs> But I can't. <laughs> it's just like, uh, and 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 where does that lead us? I don't I know. Guess he gives it. He's saying that's an explanation for the underachievement. Well, it's not necessarily it, the reading that the that we need to explain why kids are underachieving in our reports. Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I I can't say I've seen that as a basis for a referral. And I don't know what you would do to treat it uh, because I've not seen anything in the reading literature about doing that. Uh, there's a, a question about slow learners. I just got to address it. I know we're running over time. but um, And you say that all the – and a lot of RTI people say that all the research says the idea of a slow learner just doesn't exist and that um, there's all this research that's been done, settled literature, there's no such thing as a slow learner. Our kids that struggle in learning probably have learning, if they've got good instruction, they probably have a learning disability or they need to be helped. Um, and they need, they need the instruction. We shouldn't deny them access to this evidence-based in interventions because they are just categorized as slow learners. 
And I, um, I, I've, I mean, all the years doing this, I've always had this doubt about this whole slow, slow learner thing. And I think, you know, with the, when the discrepancy ability thing change, you know, with this discrepancy ability, um, uh, achievement had changed and we started looking at more different, a different patterns. Um, there was still this argument that even though you didn't have the, the simple discrepancy, which I feel like the literature did address, there was still this argument that you could have like a sort of flat profile of a learner oof. and a low flat profile, like a knees flat, flat profile. So go ahead, Tark. <laughs> well, there's, okay. So you have to, if, okay, if you hold a belief, okay, that there is a, I don't want to say a person, but the, there is a belief of the, in a slow learner, okay? And, and you hold true to that belief, okay? You have to hold true to other consequences of that belief, okay? So this, let's, let's make it a, like a, a logical set of other consequences, okay? So like premises. If you could make this into a Greek theorem of A, therefore B, therefore C, therefore, okay? So if one believes in slow learners, and let's say if slow learners equal persons who score in the 80s on cognitive tests or something like that, and if slow learners are those persons who score, who have consistently flat profiles, well, first, there's people don't have consistently flat profiles. On, that, that's not true. There's just no evidence of that sort of thing. Okay, so we can we can take that one and throw that one out. Okay, second, if people with scores in the 80s, well. That would mean probably about 16 to 20% of poor people are slow learners. Because, mm -hmm. okay, that percent of poor people earn scores, you know, about one in four would be people that are poor. Okay. And if that's true, then one has to make statements that poor people are slow. You have to accept the consequences of that. And then one would also have to accept the consequences that persons of color are slow. Because you can't cherry pick people who would earn those scores, okay? And I'm unwilling to accept that, okay? So those are sort of some of those consequences. Then you'd have to also accept the consequences that if you study person who earn those scores that they learn more slowly and there's no evidence of that, okay? That uh, <clears throat> your folks in Texas have shown there's no correlation between cognitive ability and person's rate of learning in reading, okay? And I'll, I'd be glad to send you the, the yeah, reference. I think that there's a lot of comments on that. Um, yeah, I mean, that so you, 
There's right. the one that's saying that brain research in the field of dyslexia um, seems outside of a sociological issue, and that um, that um, there there has been some correlations between um, the processing skills, of, especially like processing speed, um, and the rapid naming. The, those kinds of things are so correlated with dyslexia that I mean, I had Nancy Mather on a couple weeks ago and she was saying that yeah you might be able to intervene with these kids early on but it's gonna it, this that the rapid naming kind of problem the, the, they might learn the phonological processes that when we teach them they might learn to decode but they uh, people who who struggle with the with that are most often always having struggles with reading quickly like reading fluently and they read slowly uh, even once they get that phonological and and I think that's where a lot of the um, on the side, you know, the the people who study cognition are saying that maybe some of this literature is being not being addressed or ignored that um, kids with dyslexia do, or the kids that we're saying have dyslexia. We see that common pattern of um, I think that's really, really far removed from the concept of the slow learner. Mm -hmm. And and I think that I think that's really, really far removed from the slow learner. And and like way, way, way far removed. And and I really sort of uh, I I think this notion of processing speed, like uh, like you're an iPhone four and I'm an iPhone eight is really disturbing you know i i just find it like uh uh i'm i'm really skeptical about that i'm really really skeptical especially with things like rapid auto you know seriously i'm really skeptical about making those predictions just really skeptical well saying that rapid struggles in rapid naming are going to predict learning this or dyslexia and i think that's not i don't think that that's what they're saying yeah. necessarily but just saying like that dyslexia could be something like a, a um not a binary condition but just something that you can that could develop over time and that the way you look for it is for looking at risk factors so no one risk factor would cause it but um, but when you have several risk factors, they paint a picture of somebody who's at risk for developing dyslexia. So you know, those <laughs> risk factors can be things like you know, if your parents have it, if you um, have trouble with rapid naming and those kinds of things. Right, but when we start boiling this stuff down out of, you start taking, what percent of people do you think really have dyslexia? Like well, we really have a lot about that on here. And you know, the National Council on Learning Disability says one in five should be diagnosed with a learning disability, and basically that most of those are kids with dyslexia. And Nonsense. That's Utter... the National Council, there are leadership and learning disabilities. They want us right. to diagnose one in five. One and in then... five. Right. That's twenty percent. Okay. Mm -hmm. And our national rate of Persons with disabilities right now is what? Persons with disabilities right now is something like 18%. Yeah, okay. With disabilities. That's autism and uh -huh. death and everything. Uh-huh. 
Right. Uh-huh. So there's more people with dyslexia than we are currently serving in our country with disabilities now. Right? So do you buy that? It is one thing I saw was 30 38% increase in the last 25 years we've gone gone from, you know, and and just diagnosing learning disabilities. Right. I mean if so you had that kind of if we had that kind of increase in a in a in a disease or something, the the epidemiologists would be all over that. Right. So if you think that there's more people with dyslexia than we have already identified with all the people that we've already identified with disabilities, uh, I'm a little skeptical, right? So, you know, when you talk to like, you know, Dr. Fletcher, he would probably say people that are extremely difficult have extreme difficulty learning to read that have a some sort of like really things difficulty it's going to be really 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 small number well i think all of us are getting hungry dr <laughs> and well we want to keep talking but i yep. I, I wanted to get dr uh, schultz up here but i just i wanted to make sure you know you got to say all the things you said you got to say too and he's gone sure. now, but i'm sure he's going to listen to the rest of it and y'all could maybe start talking that would be great um, sure we've got I, I know some people from tea in here regional centers a lot of leaders um district leaders in here so we we are listening and um we do we do want to you know make sure we have a um, really rounded uh i guess perspective on and I think taking it back to the beginning, you know, that's, we are the last piece of Brown versus Board of Education. We yeah. thought that, we, people think that's something part of the past. We're still doing it. Spe oh, yeah. Including kids in special education means making sure we close the gap with, for kids with disabilities. And we're part of making that. I mean, if I want any motivation in life, that motivates me. I want to be part of that vision to, yeah. be, to close the gap and to help kids with disabilities be included and um, and really f see the full realization of Brown versus Board of Education. Like, isn't that, wouldn't that be just so special to be part of that? Uh, yeah, if you think, all, I mean, people forget this is a civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we can keep going back to that, all the arguments aside about who is and who isn't, uh, let's focus on outcomes for kids and do everything we can to uh, uh, ensure that we can, you know, collect the right kind of data to ensure uh, that kids get the appropriately intensive intervention they need and they benefit. And, right. you know, that's ultimately what I hope we can do. There's so many good things in the chat. I just wish I could delve into them for another hour. But, um, I mean, we've got people saying, uh, <laughs> you know, start a movement where we start DNQing kids and for ad inadequate instruction. Is that what we do? Like, what, I think a lot of people are just really, and that's why I started this, because we just, the discussion needs to be had. What do we do? Um, COVID's happened. Before COVID, we hadn't made, we didn't only made three points of growth on the 
on the NAEP yeah. reading. I mean, there's Louisiana has a different reading level than California. I mean, there's so many things yeah. going on here. And um, well, Nazi, you can digest. And right. and I always do this, you know, that that, you know, I, I, I tend to sometimes stir up stuff and get people thinking. And I always hate to, to leave without offering that if there's any any interest in letting things stir for a while and uh, uh, if there's interest in uh, coming at another time where I don't talk and other I just listen and answer questions um, you know I'm wow, always open great. to do that but that it's, would be great it's to, to listen and, and try to keep my answers short and, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I know you got a, a little one to get, very special uh, little son that you take after really um a lot so you look after a lot so I, i'll let yeah, you I get got back a, to him and your family got a 14 and... year old so yep so and we'll... uh, it's always mark by the way now it's, it's a okay. unless you're a lawyer or a or a physician i make them try to make them call me doctor but other oh. than that it's, <laughs> it's it's with with my colleagues with you folks it's always mark so gotcha. okay all right. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for joining. We're going to keep the discussion going. I will. We will talk with Dr. Shin to see if there's another oh, time. With who? To play, get, oh, Mark. With Mark. Um, okay. And get him to talk maybe with Dr. Schultz, Ed. <laughs> and um, <laughs> He might be doctor, but. I think he's fine with Ed, too. And, and um, you know, we can, we can get y'all talking and maybe we can move Texas. We can find a way. Who knows? maybe diagnosticians can be part of it and not be told that we this is not our our lane stay in our lane you know like this this is we need to all all of us need to be part of bringing change to our education and if whatever part we can do we're going to do it and we can work with others to do that too you know, we can listen to kids read we can yeah, always we do can that listen to kids read <laughs> we'll do that we can <laughs> we always can do that <laughs> we can always do that nazi yeah all right. Thanks so much, Mark. Take care. Have a good evening. All right. You too.